All right, let's open up our Bibles to 2 Samuel. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to pick one up over there. And one of the things we've been doing, does everybody know what I'm talking about? The journal Bibles. Uh, what it is, is it's whatever book in the Bible that we're preaching through. It's a separate, it's got all the scripture, but then it's got places to put your notes in it. So for 2 Samuel, we have some there. If they're not on the table, they might be under the table in a box. So 2 Samuel's over there. So if you don't have one, I would encourage you to pick one that up, one of those up. With that said, we are in 2 Samuel chapter 1. What we're going to do is instead of reading like we sometimes do in the front end of the sermon, we will read it as we go through the passage. But before we get started, I, I, I know Ray just prayed, but uh, just to even get my heart, my mind right, I want us to pray again. So let's pray uh, as we uh, prepare to open up the Word of God. Uh, Father, we come before you. We thank you for the amazing privilege it is that uh, you have revealed yourself to us, that we have your word, that you speak uh, in and through it, that your Holy Spirit guides and directs us. So we pray uh, to that end this morning that this would not be a mere religious, uh, formal practice that we're doing, but God, that we would meet with you and hear from you. And we pray uh, ultimately that it would be life-changing. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, what's the biggest mess you've ever made? Biggest mess you've ever made. How difficult was it to clean up? And was it ever restored to kind of its original state? Couple, at our old house, two particular ones like stand out for me. Number one, I was walking in from our garage into our, our very small mud room and I somehow clipped the detergent, and it was a full detergent. Like one of the detergents that has 120-something loads detergent liquid, and I clipped it, and by the time I was able to turn around, it hit the ground, and it poured the whole thing out. It took, first of all, we just started getting like towels and stuff, and how we did the laundry moving forward is we would wring out the towels for the next month and a half, to get the detergent in. And I, I just, I, I don't even know by the time we left if the film that was on the ground ever got cleaned up. It just, it felt always sticky and detergent. So that was the one that stood out. But the other one, and this one was far worse, was I was, my daughter was younger. I was in a room, probably telling her a story or reading. And I looked up and I thought that it looked like the ceiling might have a leak. And I went up, I, I, I got a chair or something, I touched it, it was not wet, but it had like a moisture pattern. It's like 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night or something like that. And I was like, you know what would be a good idea? I should go up into the attic right now. So I went up in the attic. It's not a finished attic. You have to step on the boards. Well, I ended up not stepping on a board, and I put my knee all the way through my daughter's ceiling. So what, and it ended up, on top of it all, there was no leaking. There's nothing wrong. It was great. Dry as can be. Uh, apparently, there was some humidity in the room, and it just was like a, a stain from the humidity that's sitting there. So, so yeah, so those are two giant messes, and I think we can all relate to messes, can we not? Some are difficult to clean up. The bigger the mess, the harder it is to ever return it uh, to its original state of glory. Well, as we get to Second Samuel we're going to see a bigger mess than what I did uh, putting my knee through the ceiling. It is an absolute mess 
amongst God's people. They've been defeated by their enemy. Their desired king is dead. The heir apparent is living amongst the enemy. The people are divided. And yet, God is in the midst of all of this. God is at work. His Savior is slowly but surely on his way to the throne. And what we're going to see today is just how God uses beauty for ashes, how his grace is with his people in the biggest messes of life. So that's what we're going to look at big picture as we uh, consider chapter one of Second Samuel. Uh, if you're taking notes and want to get a glimpse of where we're going, uh, we're going to begin our time by looking at a brief recap of the book. That's important. Uh, we haven't been in First Samuel since the end of summer, or end of, end of spring, beginning of summer. And so I'm going to catch us up to speed. Second thing we're going to consider is we're going to look at a big, a bad report from the battle, a bad report from the battle. And we're going to see uh, some lies being propagated to David and how David responds to all of it. And then lastly, we're going to see a beautiful remembrance of the buried, a beautiful remembrance of the buried. So let's get started as we see a brief recap of the book. So we're in our first week, if you're visiting, in the study of 2 Samuel. Uh, we looked at 1 Samuel. We finished that in like, May, and then the last, the whole summer we've been in the book of James. Now we're back in 2 Samuel. We need to understand, originally 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel were a cohesive unit, okay? They're one book. So with the translations and everything, it's been divided up. But the original book, it would have been First and Second Samuel together. And it's important then with, with that, we're, we're basically picking up in the middle of a book. You want to know what's going on prior to that. Uh, I've, I've seen it on television shows where they'll have a previously on recap in the beginning. And maybe if it's the first episode of a new season— Oh, previously in last season of whatever the show is, and they'll show highlights and clips so you kind of get a feel of where the story is, and that's what really needs to happen right now. So we need to look at the bigger context. Now the bigger context that First Samuel was, was it was around the time at the end of the Judges. And if you remember the Judges, it was a dark dark, dark season amongst God's people. Uh, Judges 21-25 sums it up very well. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So that context, we start 1 Samuel on. Uh, Hannah, she's without child. She prays for this child. God gives her Samuel. And Samuel's going to be a bright light in the darkness. He's going to come along and he's going to end up replacing the bad religious leaders of the time. If you recall, Eli and his, his, his two sons that are, were worthless, Hophni and Phinehas. So he's going to replace them. And he judges Israel for a long season. It even says that he uh, had great success against the Philistines during that time. But then as he was nearing the end of his life, his kids were not that great either. God's people started to get restless. You remember the judges time, it says, in those days there was no what? King. And they're looking out amongst their neighbors. And they're looking out at the known world that they're in. And they're like, you know what? They have something we don't have. So 1 Samuel 8, 5 to 7 says this. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And God says, obey the voice of the people. 
For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king. So we start seeing a problem amongst God's people. And what is the problem? Even though they didn't have a king like the world, did they have a king? They had Yahweh. They had God. And yet that wasn't good enough for them. So he gives them their king. You want a king like the world? Here is your king like the world. And they give him Saul. Now, if you remember Saul, on paper, Saul was amazing. He was tall, dark, and handsome. He was a foot, like a head taller than everybody. So he was the guy that all the girls liked, and he was the guy that all the guys wanted to be like. And he starts off, and there's times where like, this guy could be a pretty good king. But in a very short season, they had buyer's remorse. What's buyer's remorse? You buy a house. You've been wanting this house for so long. Maybe you even paid a little bit more than you were willing initially to buy the house. You get in the house. You're so excited we got the house. Then week after week, everything starts to what? To break and fall apart. And you're buying, paying money after money on things. And you start calling it a money pit. And then you start regretting. And it's that idea of watch what you wish for. And this is what they wished for. They wanted a king like the world, and God gave them a king like the world. Well, eventually he disobeys God to the point that God says, I'm done with you. I'm going to replace you, and I'm going to give you now a king after my own heart. And that's going to be David. But here's the problem. That is not a quick transition. Saul won't go quietly. So David is on the run, as we saw through most of 1 Samuel, for over 10 years on the run, on the lamb with Saul. And he gets multiple opportunities to kill Saul, but what does he not do? He doesn't kill him. So that's kind of the the bigger context. And and in the midst of that, even this man after God's own heart, we're seeing a a preview, we're seeing a foreshadowing that there's going to be a king even after David who's going to be far greater. Far glorious. So this is the backstory of who? Jesus. Well, have you ever regretted what you wished for? Have you ever got impatient waiting on God to act? That's the bigger context. Well, the immediate context, the last few chapters, if you recall, it was a split screen, if you remember. We would have start parts talking about Saul, and then we would switch over, and what would happen? It was David. Then we would go back to Saul, then back to David, and back to Saul. Well, Saul, as the king, he continued to disobey God. He continued to really go down the wrong path, and it got to a point where God stopped helping him. God's like, I'm rejecting you. So this was a big problem. So Saul is on the cusp of going into battle versus the Philistines. And he's scared, and he doesn't know what to do. He used to have Samuel, and Samuel would tell him what to do, and he could go to God, and he goes to God. And it was kind of like, if you remember the, who wants to be a millionaire? They would have the lifeline, and the person would be sitting there, and like, what are you going to use? And like, phone a friend. And he would call the person, and the phone would ring. And I think every time I ever watched it, somebody would always answer the phone. I think they probably called the person before for theatrics and said, hey, are you going to be there? But wouldn't it be pretty awkward? You're on it. You're the million-dollar question. You're like, I'm going to call my father-in-law. And then you call, and it keeps ringing. 
and ringing and then goes to voicemail. That's kind of what goes on here with Saul. He goes to God and it, no response. So what he ends up doing is he improvises. He goes to a median, a witch, and God uses it to give him a message of judgment. He has Samuel, who is already dead, speak to Saul, and he warns him of this. 1 Samuel 28, 18 says, Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, and you did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, you and your people will be into the hands of the Philistines this day, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. So you're going to lose, the nation's going to be defeated, and you and your sons dead. That's the judgment. So we're, we're there, and then all of a sudden we go over, and we go to David. And guess where David is at this point? David is amongst the Philistines, and he is getting ready to fight for who? The Philistines. So Saul is going to have to go against David in battle. And it's not just David. David's going to be going against his, his, his kindred folk, his, his people. And luckily, and it wasn't luck because this was God's sovereign hand, God ultimately steps in through one of the Philistine leaders, and they're like, what are we doing? We're going to bring the guy that slayed tens of thousands of Philistines into battle with the Philistines? This is not wise. This is not a good idea. So he, he, he gets nixed. They, they kick him out. So we, you know, we're kind of wiping the sweat off of our foreheads and, oh my, that was a close call. And David gets back to where he was staying in Philistia. Uh, Philistia. It's, uh, what is it? Zigzag? Yeah, Ziklag. And he's at Ziklag, and guess what happened there? They've been defeated by the Amalekites. Kids, wives have all been taken. So David, he seeks God's face. God is speaking to David still. He ends up giving him the go-ahead, go get him. They end up going, they have a great victory, defeats the Amalekites, come back, nobody's lost. They get back. And then we flip over to the next screen, and Saul is not as lucky, as victorious. Saul and Jonathan Israel, they fight. They lose to the Philistines. And the, the really sad thing is at the end, they, in verse 31, chapter 31, verse 9, the Philistines, they came to strip the slain. They found Saul and his three sons fallen. They cut off his head. They stripped off his armor and sent messengers through the land of the Philistines to carry the, listen to what it says, the good news, the gospel to the house of their idols and to the people. It's not the gospel that we know, but it's this false idol, pagan gospel. And this is where we find ourselves when we pick up at 2 Samuel. In other words, it is a soap opera. It is a mess. God's people have been defeated. It looks on the surface that God has been defeated. Well, have you ever been in a position where your life and your future looked as cloudy and uncertain? Maybe you're there today. And, and I think this book is going to be extremely helpful for you as you see that God is in the midst of of this. All right, so let's actually get to the book. So we saw uh, a brief recap of the book. Let's look at the bad report from the battle. We're going to read verses 1 to 10. So it says, After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. 
And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and he paid homage. David said to him, where did you come from? And he said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son, Jonathan, are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son, Jonathan, are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were closing upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me and said, and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I answered, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that he had on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. First of all, we see a lie. Now David knows, remember at this point, that a battle is happening. Israel versus the Philistines. But what he doesn't have is what we have in 2022. He can't go on the news. Nobody's tweeting this. Nobody is posting it on Instagram or Snapchat or whatever the social media is. He doesn't know. So he, he knows a fight is going on because he was almost in it. And now he's just wondering and waiting what happened. He has no idea. But he's starting to feel like he's got a glimpse. Why? Because the guy comes and what does he have on? His clothes are torn and he's got dirt on his head. Any idea of why he would be doing that? It's symbolic of what? of mourning, tearing your clothes, the dirt. It was symbolic of mourning. It was a clue. But right there, we, we hear it. And if you remember the end of chapter 31, we just read two different accounts, two different stories of what happened at the time. And we got to really kind of discern who's telling the truth. There was a game show back in the day. It was called uh, To Tell the Truth, I believe in. And you would have two imposters and one real person. And maybe they would say they were an, a, a pilot in the military or something. And they would all three be there. One would be being honest. The other two would be lying. And you're trying to discern what's the truth. Well, here's what we need to figure out. What is really happening and what did happen? There's a major conflict so 1 Samuel chapter 31, you're right there, so look over your page. 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 4 to 5. Yeah. I'll start at 3, actually. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers, okay? Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and he fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. So that's account number one. Account number two, what does the Amalekite say happened? 
Saul was hurt. I came along. And notice what it says. Uh, it just so happened. Coincidentally, I'm just kind of strolling through a battlefield, and I came across the king. And he was really wounded. And he asked me, hey, can you please end this for me? And, and because of all of his medical knowledge, because he's like, I was sure he wouldn't survive, so it was a mercy killing on my part. I stepped in, I helped kill him, and oh, and then I grabbed the, the crown, I grabbed the armlet, and I brought it to you, my Lord. Who do you think's telling the truth? Not the Amalekite. He's lying. And he ends up costing him his life. That's going to be the irony in all this. He's going to end up being killed for, saying, for doing something that he didn't do. His life is going to end up being taken. But Saul, a couple things, a couple reasons why we can know it's not true, uh, his account. One is Saul would have never been as alone as he was. Remember, he was there with his armor bearer until he died. They would have, I mean, he is, the, he is the most prized person in a battlefield, the king. And the idea that he was alone and by himself with this random Amalekite maneuvering through the battlefield. Why is he doing it then? Because he's opportunistic. There's going to be a change of the throne, right? It's going to go from Saul to David. Wouldn't it be good, in the, because he's an Amalekite living amongst the Israelites, wouldn't it be good to have a friend in high places? So I'm going to come here, and he would have known about the conflict in some capacity between David and Saul. So like, hey, FYI, I helped kill the guy that's been trying to kill you, and I'm giving you the, the crown, and you know, it, it, hey, maybe when you're on the throne, could you remember me? Maybe give me a position, maybe give me some, some money, who knows? He, he's doing it for that reason. He's got an agenda here. Oh, how easy do we lie? Do you see how easy it is to try to manipulate to get ahead? So we see the lie, but then now we're going to see the destruction. Verse 11, he goes on, says, and David took hold of his clothes and he tore them and so did all the men who were with him. I'm thinking the Amalekite was not anticipating that being the response. I think he's anticipating joy, celebration. The king is dead. I can finally not be on the run. That's not David's response. And they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, where did you come from? He answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. And David said to him, how is it you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointing. So David kills him, spared Saul so many times because he had a high view of the anointed one. He refused to be the one that would strike down the anointed one. And what we see in all of this is the Amalekite did a really poor job of reading the room. Do you know what it means to read the room? Where you're in a room and you're kind of anticipating one response from the people 
and you didn't really appreciate how the response would actually be. I remember when I was in seminary, I went to seminary in Mississippi, and I had an opportunity, one of my pastors, or one of my professors, pastored a small country church, and he's like, hey, I'm going to be out of town would you fill in for me and preach for me? So it's one of the first times I've ever did what I'm doing right now before a a congregation. And we went there and it was like so far into the boonies and uh, service came and got to the point where I was preaching and they came up and they're like, hey, one of uh, Professor Barkley's students is going to preach for us today. And they introduced me as he is from the other side. What's the other side? I'm in Mississippi, and like, there's, you know, you talk about the food, you talk about the weather, and you talk about the Civil War. That's what you talk about. So it was one of the first times ever that I was introduced as being from the other side. I am from the other side. I am, especially younger, a little bit more foolish, and a whole lot more cocky. So when I got up there, and I said the other side, I said, you mean the winning side? did not, did not read the room, did not read the room. I have never preached a sermon before, maybe one wedding, where I had more people look at me with just anger and like rage. And I remember Abby's in the back like, are you serious? You said that. Reading the room. He thinks, it it is just the irony The Amalekite thinks, man, I'm getting a payday out of this. This is going to be awesome. I'm, who knows, he might make me his, his, you know, armor bearer. I'm going to get paid. And instead, he doesn't realize that David has such a high view of God's anointed that like you, you did the one thing you should have never done. And I can't let this go by. But I think something else is going on here. And I think it's important to realize the mistake that Saul made that was the, the, the final draw with God, does anybody remember what it was? He was told to do one thing. To wipe out the Amalekites. You're starting to see the irony in all this. And we've already seen David do that in chapters 30. The Amalekites attacked. They went. He killed the Malachites. He got his people back. So we're starting to see David do what Saul could never do, is obey God. And right here in the moment, David is going to do what Saul never did. He ends up killing the Amalekite. 1 Samuel 15, thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. And he says, don't spare. And what did Saul do? He spared. He spared the king. Saul spared all the good stuff. And he was supposed to get rid of all of it. And what we see, I think, in all of this is that David is going to finally be a better king. He's going to be a king after God's own heart. He's going to be a king that is obedient. But guess what? In 2 Samuel, we're going to find out David is not the best king. Because where we're quick to judge Saul, just give us a few weeks and we'll start judging David. Because good old man after God's own heart is going to commit adultery. He's going to have the the husband murdered. David also is not going to be that great king. 
And what we see and what the hope is and really at the heart of First and Second Samuel is that there's going to finally come a king who's going to sit on the throne. He's going to obey God. He's going to be the king that we need. And that king is Jesus. And that king right now is sitting on his throne. And one day he's returning and we're going to get to rule and reign alongside of him. Well, do you long for this King Jesus? The need for a better leader. I, I think when we read chapters and stories like that, we just see this mess. It should break our heart, but it should also encourage us that Jesus has come and is coming. All right, so you see the brief recap uh, of the book. We had the bad report from the battle. Well, let's now look at the beautiful remembrance of the buried. We're going to see David's response of lament for their deaths. Uh, One of the things we're going to see in this lament and the reason that he is so grieving is because God's glory is at stake. Because God's glory is at stake. Read verse 17 with me. It says, And David lamented uh, with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son, and he said it should be taught to the people of Judah, because it is, behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil from the blood of the stain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Notice the esteem, the exalting, the acclaim of God that is at center of what David is saying. You see, it's much more that Saul and Jonathan died. At the end of the day, it looks like God has lost. Because you remember, this is kind of like round two or the rematch. If you recall in 1 Samuel, Philistines defeated the Israelites and they took the Ark of the Covenant, took it with them, and they took it back uh, to their land and they put the Ark in with their God, Dagon. And what happened the next morning? Dagon's bowing down, Dagon loses its, its arms, and it was as very clear the reason we're suffering. And then people got sick, and so they're like, get this ark out of here. And that was like, okay, Match number one, Yahweh beated Dagon. But now this happens. And it's like all of a sudden, did Dagon now beat Yahweh? Part of the reason I think they do what they do even here uh, in 1 Samuel 31, 9, they cut off his head. They stripped off his armor. They sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry, like I said, the gospel to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Asheroth. Looks like God is lost. And that's why he's saying even in this lament, don't let the Philistines rejoice. If you remember, this is not the first time that David was concerned about the glory of God. Can you think of another time in 1 Samuel, David was concerned about the glory of God? Probably one of the most famous Bible stories in all of the Bible. David and Goliath. And day in and day out, he mocks God's army. He mocks God. David shows up 
And what does he say? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should divide the armies of the living God? David did not go to fight Goliath just for esteem, to, to become famous. Though David fought because nobody else was man enough to stand up for God's glory. He's like, if you aren't going to do something about it, I'm going to because I'm not going to tolerate my glorious, majestic, mighty God being spoken so poorly by this uncircumcised Philistine. I don't care if he's five foot or ten foot, I'm going to do something about it. And David does something about it because he has such a high view of God's glory. And I have to ask this, where are we now when it comes to that? Because I think we, as Christians, have such a low, such a diminished view of God's glory. We're cool with our country trampling the name of the Lord, trampling his word. We just don't, like, we're, we're kind of just, we sit by passively. We don't speak for truth because, like, well, we don't want to offend anybody. And then, if it wasn't bad enough that we live in a culture and society like that, we're allowing our churches to become like the culture and society, and the, the word is being perverted, and truth is being thrown out. And, and I have to ask, where are the Davids amongst us? Where is your concern for God's glory that you're going to stand up and speak truth, even if it isn't acceptable? Look at God's acclaim, but not just even his acclaim. Look at the God's anointed. He goes on to verse 23, Saul and Jonathan beloved and lovely in life and in death. They were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Your daughters of Israel weep over Saul who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. It's really wild that David is complimenting and building up who? Who's been trying to kill him for 10 years? I mean, it feels almost like some revisionist history. Like, man, like David's not, like David, like Saul was not a good dude. And yet he's building him up. And even when he was, had an opportunity to kill him, 1 Samuel 24, 12, it says, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. David knew that he had been anointed to be king. And the only way he was going to become king is if God made it happen. And his hands were not going to be a part of it. He refused to force God's will his way. And that's a, a glorious thing of David. Because I think you and I sometimes have an inkling of what God's will is in a situation, and we make it happen. We force it. We manipulate. We lie. We cheat and steal. It's like, well, it's God's will anyhow. No, that's not how it works. God's will is also complying with the way and he celebrates Saul. It's, it's really remarkable that he said, you know, he did a good job. I mean, it would make sense. It would make sense if David hated Saul, wouldn't it? I mean, this guy has made him be on the run for 10 years. I mean, it reminds me of the, the, the animosity between Bo Schembechler and Woody Hayes in Ohio State, Michigan, back in the day for football. I mean, he, he was the one that the coach that would, instead of saying Michigan, he would call it the team what? The team up north. He wouldn't even say it. There was rumors that they were not allowed to get gas with their team bus in the state of Michigan, no matter what. 
Like that, like the bus drivers knew you got to get gas before we cross the border. We are not allowed to even get gas. That kind of hatred and animosity. It would make sense, a Hatfield McCoy kind of deal with David. And yet David just speaks so favorably of him. Why? Because he was God's anointed. Who am I to judge who God would anoint? Well, do you revere what God reveres? Do you see the good even in the midst of, of, of the, the bad? All right, so uh, we, we, we see uh, the, that God's glory is at stake. And then lastly, we see the glaring loss of a friend. Now, earlier on, he says, And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Notice, first of all, the lament. I think we need to consider the response to death because I, I think as Christians, we sometimes uh, don't, we don't grieve well. I think we paint a picture sometimes that spiritual maturity means you don't grieve. If you're a really strong Christian because God is sovereign and things happen, you kind of keep a fake smile on your face. And, you know, it's, it, it's only the immature, the people that lack faith, that grieve. And, and that's not true. Ecclesiastes 3, 4, it says a time to weep, there's a time to laugh, a, a time to mourn, a time to dance. As Christians, it's okay to grieve. I would say it's biblical to lament. It's God, God has given us that to mourn. So if you've lost a loved one, a dear person, it, it's a good, it's a healthy thing to mourn over it. This past week at my kid's school, there's a, a young man who's a part of the school. He's a TCS graduate. He was 20, I think seven this past week. He is really well known in the community. He trains kids at basketball. So people come and he trains girls and boys, high school basketball, junior high basketball, elementary basketball, shot and killed. Senseless violence of Toledo. Yeah, he, he was somewhere, wrong place, wrong time, shot and killed. 27. This guy has impacted hundreds and hundreds, probably even thousands of kids through basketball. That was kind of his outlet in life, like, that God had gifted him in that area. And, and, and just even seeing the look on kids' faces and, and parents that had relationships with him, I did not know him that well. Kind of, I, I grieved that I didn't know him better. I had opportunities at times to engage, and I just didn't. And I look back like, man, I really missed an opportunity with him. But friends, it is, it's, it's, it's okay to cry. Psalm 116, 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. I think we as followers of Jesus need to be bothered more that image bearers are dying. People created in the image of God. I think we've been so desensitized. We've watched so many shows, so many movies. We watch the news that people die every single day, every single hour, and it hardly moves us unless it's close to us. And that should not be the case. It should grieve us. To, and it also should be an eye-opener to the brevity of life. Well, do you lament? Do you mourn? As you look out at this world, but not only do we see the lament, we see the loss. Read verse 25 with me. It says, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perish. All right. 
We're going to go controversial now. So verse 26 specifically is often used as a proof text to defend homosexuality in the context of the church. That David here is he's testifying that he loved Jonathan in such a way that his love was better even with all the love he had with women. So therefore, David and Jonathan were homosexuals. No reason to go there in thought at all. No biblical understanding of why that would be. One, David had the book of Genesis. So David had the reality of the creation order. There was a man and a woman. David had Leviticus that would speak of, of homosexuality as a sin, as something. And on top of it all, Second Samuel and First Samuel, they're going to expose David as a wreck. And David, actually, one of his main areas of sin is sexual sin. He lusts. He's a polygamist. He commits adultery. But there is nowhere that it talks about homosexuality. So we, we need to understand, and I think part of the problem, the reason why in our culture, in our society, you read a verse like that, you take it out of context and see David was, was gay, there's no reason to jump there at all. It's because our culture is so sexualized that we're starting to find our identity in our sexual orientation and preference and gender and all the, the wacky wild stuff that you and I are exposed to and our kids are exposed to day in and day out. There is no reason. You know what? You know what? This also is an indictment upon. We don't know what it looks like for guys to be friends. That's the problem. That we don't have, like, guy friend, our culture has, has so diminished the idea that a guy can be a close friend with another guy. And see, that is so further from what the actual culture of this book is. Because in the Jewish culture, especially at these times, that was, that was nobility, having a, a friend like that. First Samuel 20, do you remember with David? Jonathan made a covenant with the house of of, of David. And remember that that covenant was, it was Hesed, covenant faithfulness. May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan, may David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So David and Jonathan, there was nothing perverse going on. It wasn't Romans 1 where God gave them over to the lust of their flesh. No, what was going on is these guys had meaningful, significant friendships. As iron sharpens iron, so does one man sharpen another. So they were loyal, they were reliable, they were faithful. And I think what, on a practical level, what that means for us is we need to raise the bar. We need to aim higher when it comes to friendships. Because I look out in this room and I am not naive. I think a lot of you have nowhere near a friend like this. You have social media friends. You got people that you respond via Facebook or Twitter, but you don't have that person in your life where you can just be real, you can be vulnerable, you can share your struggles, you can pray with, you can hear a rebuke from. And, and I think that's, that's the indictment, that's the issue. I mean, that's something as a church we need to grow in. One of the reasons we have life groups is hopefully to foster those kind of friendships. And then from those life groups, you know, you start pairing up more and you start hanging out more and you start really developing. And then over time, those friendships get deeper and deeper and deeper. So, and, and I know that's not just the men. 
I know the women, are, there's voids and vacuums in the life among you. But do you have such friendships in your life? Are you pursuing them? June 6, or eight, actually August 6, August 9th, 1945, a great, great tragedy happened in this world, if you remember. The United States detonated two atomic bombs over the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They killed 129 and 226,000 people. So think about that. Close to 350 or more uh, people died, 50,000 people died, most of whom were civilians. It's the only use of nuclear weapons in God's grace in an armed conflict yet. But I, this, uh, a week and a half ago, I was watching, I was online, and there was pictures, photographs of the destruction side by side with photos today. So 77 years. So you look on the one side, and you see just, I mean, imagine the most, you know, violent, tragic, like, movie scene of destruction. I mean, ashes and, and, and skeletons and bodies. It just, it's awful on the left side. And then on the right side, 77 years later, it's thriving, those cities. It, it's beautiful. It really is remarkable. And you're like, how did that happen? Over 77 years, things changed. They improved. Beauty arose from those ashes. And that's really at the heart of what we see in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel is Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It is an absolute mess. They've been defeated by their enemy. The king that they begged and pleaded for is dead. The king that's going to take over is nowhere to be found yet. He's in enemy territory. The nation's going to be divided. We're going to see moving forward. It's still not going to be a quick transition for David to become king. And yet, God is in the midst. He's at work, and his Savior is slowly moving his way to the throne. And the only thing we have to do is take that picture here, and then we move about a thousand years ahead, and there's a baby born in a manger. And there's the king. And then we see that king, he lives, and then he ends up on a cross. He ends up dying. Then three days later, he is risen from the grave. And, you know, in a matter of time, he ascends to heaven. And then we have the promise, what? That that king is one day coming back. That prophet, priest, king who saved his people from their sins. And I think the encouragement for us all is God can take the Hiroshima and Nagasaki experiences and bring the risen King Jesus into our lives. So that's the hope. Whatever's going on in your circumstances today, and I know people are, we have some highs and lows as I look out in our congregation. God is in the midst. God is at work. He's always working for our good and his glory. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now, and we do thank you, uh, God, that even in the messes, often the messes that we have created ourselves, messes because of our sin, messes because of our disobedience, uh, God, you're in the midst, you're at work, and uh, we rejoice in that. So we just pray for anybody right now who is struggling, anybody who really needs to be reminded 
that you sit on your throne and that uh, Jesus is coming back. Um, We prayed to that end in his precious name. Amen. Please stand.